I'd like to introduce Pastor John Nowlin. He's going to come up this morning and share some words of encouragement for us and pray for us as we begin this study. We are just so thankful for the support of our pastors and elders here at the North Church, and John is one who has just been so encouraging to me, and he's going to tell us a little bit about his journey in James this last year as well. Thank you. Well, it is... It is a privilege to be here and see you and look out on many of my sisters in Christ that I know and some that I don't know. I just wanted to share three quick words of encouragement that hopefully point you to Jesus, each one. First, I really am grateful and I have been for many years, starting back with Mary and her ministry and Pam and Beth and the teams that they put together. I am so thankful for a scripturally rooted very strategic, very involved women's ministry. We are very blessed at the North Church for this and many other fruits, moms and other things for the women's ministry. So thank Jesus, who's a good shepherd and gives us the gifts of leadership that he has. Second, as a pastor, it really encourages my heart when God is doing something on this side of the church that's unrelated to this side of the church, and it's the same thing. So I asked one of our seniors this year to bring me their steadfastness t-shirt. As we taught through James last year, the students on their own initiative, just in their class, created this shirt. And so if you're not familiar yet, I think your theme this year is steadfast. So it's so cool that God is doing something with our seniors and and putting this vision on their t-shirts and hearts and also on our women's ministry and on each of you. Um, So I thought that would be encouraging. And third, I love the book of James. It's one of the books that we hope to have every high school class go through once in their four years. And we just did it last year. And um, I just want to say one of the things that I most appreciate about it. James is so steeped in the teaching of Jesus that he tells us really how high the bar is in everything. And you'll see it right from day one when he says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. And when we're in trials, we know how hard that is. And why does he keep doing that repeatedly? Because he wants to keep us pushing us to Jesus. Our only hope is to trust in Jesus and keep trusting in Jesus. And that's why I love James 1.5. I'm going to just try to quote it from memory because I don't have my glass. Or anyway, I can't see it. Um, I love that we can come to him for wisdom when we lack. And throughout life, I'm seeing it today, I'm lacking. And I need wisdom from God both to figure out how do I navigate the situation and God give me the power. I think if you look later in James and what he has to say with wisdom, it's not just knowledge, it's the ability to carry it out. So our God, who is a good source, has good things for you in this book. May he keep, look, keep your eyes looking to him throughout this study in humble neediness just to receive from him. And may you be a blessing to one another in this group. I'm so glad that you guys are doing this. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for each of those things. Thank you that you have given us a wonderful women's ministry. May there be so much of your shining face and countenance upon them this year and may that continue for many years to come god thank you that you are doing a work in your church may you make us all a steadfast people and god thank you for the book of james and how it humbles our hearts to look to you 
And would we have that kind of disposition? Would we be known as the people who continually call on the name of the Lord? And may we call out to you today for your wisdom and help. Please bless this study. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I just I wanted to start with actually a brief note about our women's ministry theme. John Nolan told you a little bit about that and that our theme this year is steadfast. And it really connects to the book of James. And what does that word steadfast mean? You probably talked about this around your table. But our theme verse is, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so James uses this word, or a form of the word, two times. He says, blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial. This is a verse that we are going to study next week in our lesson. And then he also uses it in James 5.11, which I referred to earlier, which is the idea of Job and how Job remains steadfast under trial. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So the definition of steadfastness includes the idea of faithfulness, of wholeness, of being wholly committed, united to Christ alone. And isn't this what we want? It is. Of course it is, right? The opposite would be unfaithfulness. And the Bible tells a story of God's people turning from him, turning to other lovers. And you know, our troublesome condition is that we too often love other things rather than God. Repeatedly in scripture, God is seen as the faithful, steadfast husband of his people. And instead, instead of steadfastly loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Sometimes we cheat, we rebel, we don't put our faith and our trust fully in him. The other word that James uses to describe the condition of being not steadfast is double-minded. We saw this in our lesson today in verse uh, 8. And James put it, or, uh, Jesus actually put it this way in Matthew 6.24. He said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. One thread that we're going to see throughout the letter of James is the idea of being steadfast, that is wholeheartedly devoted to God, having integrity, or consistency between what we believe here and here and how we behave. Being of one mind that trusts in God and trusts in his good purposes for us rather than being a double-minded person or a person with a divided heart or a split personality, we might say. So how do we get there? What is that process of becoming steadfast? Well, about seven years ago, my mom experienced a collection of symptoms, including some tiredness, some blood pressure swings, some shortness of breath, and then eventually some pain in her chest. It was a bit shocking when we found out that instead of some adjustment in her medication, she needed open-heart surgery and multiple bypasses. Well, James is like a heart surgeon. who He sees problematic symptoms in the church, in our lives, and rather than prescribing various meds or diet or exercise to alleviate each of the symptoms, he diagnoses the root cause underlying it all, and that is a heart 
that is not steadfastly trusting in God. And James also tells us the cure for this. I want you to turn to James 4, verse 6 right now. So grab your little journals or your Bibles or your devices. James 4, 6. James says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then he goes on to say, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The gospel is what we need. God's grace is the cure for a heart that is not steadfast. And the means that God uses to make us steadfast, we saw that in our passage this week, didn't we? What does God use to make us steadfast? Trials, that's right. And so my aim this morning is that you will see that we need God's wisdom in order to understand God's purposes and to see his perspective on trials so that we might remain steadfast and that we would mature to completeness. So I'd like to pray before we dig into the scripture. So Father, you are wise, you are good, you are kind beyond all measure. You give us grace. And so Lord, we pray for grace and we pray for wisdom and understanding that we might see these wonderful things that you have for us in James 1, 1 through 11 this morning. Would you do that work in our hearts this morning that we could really see you and know you and treasure you in all of our life? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna begin here at James 1, 1. And this is just James's introduction, and I just want to remind you that Brian Tabb did an amazing job, an overview, and an introduction to the book of James, so we're not going to spend a lot of time here. The one thing that I want to mention is this little word, greetings, which seems like a very common way to start a letter, like we might say, dear Pam, right? But this word actually is kind of a play on words, because it means to be glad, rejoice, and then what's the next command here that we see. What, what do we see after greetings? Count it all joy. So you can see the connection between rejoice, be glad, and joy. So what James is doing here is he is kind of like setting up some dominoes that are in a line, and he's going to set up some other instances where we have one word that will follow another, and we can just kind of follow his trail throughout. He's a very skilled writer. So he says, count it all joy, or to rejoice and be glad, as Matthew 5, 11 in the Beatitudes would tell us. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here we have our first imperative, or command, count it all joy. There are many, many imperatives in the book of James. In fact, there are nearly 60 in only 100 verses. So it's the highest number of imperatives of any book in the New Testament. So we might say, what does it mean to count it all joy? Well, to count something is a command from God to think in a certain way, to consider something. It means to press our minds into the biblical truth about something, despite maybe what others tell us or our own thoughts or how we feel about something. 
As Pastor Stephen said in his concluding message in Colossians, he said, Christ is at work in the crevices of our lives. All right? All of our experiences are not by accident. We have a loving Savior. We have a good, good Father who is both sovereign and wise and has a purpose behind each and every circumstance of our lives. So around your tables this morning, I hope you had a chance to share what's going on in your lives a little bit and pray for one another. I think the trials represented in this room are probably as varied as each of you individually. There's maybe disappointment, grief, sleepless nights, a car that stalled on your way here, and, had, and Joyce, she had to leave because your car stalled. Okay, there are many, many trials of various kinds going on in all of our lives. Last week, my four-year-old grandson illustrated different ways of responding to trials. <laughs> he, uh, he's gone through a couple of unique things uh, to four-year-olds. I mean, he went to a new school, so he's in a new preschool meeting new kids, and he just added a new baby sister, which is cause for great joy and rejoicing, but sometimes for a four-year-old or a two-year-old, there's a little bit of, you know, processing you have to do there. But he's learning as he's growing. He's picking up on his parents' love for him, and hopefully the grandparents trust in the Lord through hard times, and, you know, the years bring some maturity in a few different ways. Um, He gains a greater knowledge that because his parents love him and desire his good, he learns to trust them. And so we, too, come to know the character of God and the purposes of God as we grow deeper and deeper in our trust in him. So we were driving in our car on Saturday afternoon. I had taken the three kids, the three older kids, their ages six, four, and two, uh, so that mama and baby sister could do some resting. And on the way back from being, having them for a few hours, I was exhausted and thinking, I just need to get them back for nap time. <laughs> and from the back seat... I hear my little grandson singing at the top of his lungs, great is your faithfulness to me. And I'm thinking, oh, it just blessed my heart. And then I went and I looked at the lyrics, the full lyrics, and here this part really stuck out to me. Though the storms may come and the winds may blow, I'll remain steadfast. And let my heart learn when you speak a word, it will come to pass. Great is your faithfulness to me. Great is your faithfulness. And what a great reminder from him to me to continue to trust in the Lord. So Jesus is faithful. He is steadfast when we walk through storms. And Jesus is Lord when we walk through the valleys, even the valley of the shadow of death. When we go through trials, we discover what kind of faith we really have. Trials reveal our faith, but they also strengthen our faith, faith, and they develop that Christ-like character in us. And as we mature, we gain a greater confidence in the kindness of God's heart and the goodness of his loving providence. So as I thought about what does it mean to count it all joy, I didn't want to have a flippant, you know, command you all, put on a smiley face. So I decided to ask four dear sisters, all of whom I met here at the North Church, they're all walking a journey of cancer right now, and I decided to ask all four of them, what does it mean for you to count it all joy? 
and I, I, I want to read to you some of their responses. One of them is in the morning class, and she's not here today because she's home with COVID in addition to cancer. Anna, she is always with a smile on her face, testifying to the goodness of God in the midst of her treatment for stage four lung cancer. She also has painful neuropathy, and she wrote this. As to James and the subject of trials, my list today is different than 17 years ago, but my Lord is meeting my needs daily. God has helped me see that the list of trials may change, but God's word never changes. I try to find verses that remind me of his faithfulness. He never gives me more than I can bear with his abiding watch care. He has been faithful in my husband's dementia, my cancer, COVID, providing a condo across the street for my son's family, transportation, my North Church family, small group in my home, and women's Bible study. Through it all, he has held me steadfastly and securely with much joy and thanksgiving. And then there's Jessica. After years of suffering, she was diagnosed this summer with a brain tumor. She said, I've decided to write about all the things I'm thankful for instead of focusing on the crummy feelings that think they are going to overtake my joy. To be honest, they easily can, but I'm fighting it. And then after giving a list of many things she was thankful for, she wrote, I am most thankful for God's grace on my mind and my body. This week was tough. I hit a wall and I had to ask myself, if I really believe what I say I believe, do I really believe that his grace is sufficient for me? Do I really believe that his power is being made perfect in my weakness? I found out that I do. I believe. Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith means being sure of the things we hope for, and faith means knowing that something is real even if we don't see it. I hope for future grace to finish strong, and I believe that it's real even though I don't always feel it. Isn't that good encouragement? And then there's Barb. Barb has been battling ovarian cancer for the last year. She said, the joy comes in knowing God is at work and suffering is full of purpose. Suffering humbles me and wakes me up to my dependence on God. Suffering strengthens my relationship with God as my father through prayer and his word as never before. And then there's a benefit that I'd never thought of before. I have more compassion for those who are suffering around me. And then there's Gail. Gail, who is now in hospice with end-stage metastatic breast cancer, she told me this the day before yesterday. She said, count it all joy doesn't mean that you ask for it. The trial, the pain, the suffering. The joy has to be that God is with you and using it for his purpose and that all those fallout things produce endurance and you are perfect and complete. I'm still in that process. It's not all there but I get it better than I did 10 years ago. When I can't sleep at night because I can't breathe, I'm crying out to God just to help me through this because it's miserable. This is the hardest season I've ever been in. My faith is strong in God, but suffering is really, really hard. God is carrying me on eagle's wings, like he carried the people of Israel in Exodus 19.4. So those are four dear sisters who are really walking a hard road. And I think the words in this passage where it says, count it all joy, does that seem a little confusing to you? 
Does that seem like we should just plaster a happy sticker all over everything? Trials come in various degrees of difficulty, but we wouldn't call them all happy. James doesn't mean for us to think about trials as only joy and not painful or hard. All here is serving as like an intensifier of the word joy. So although not every aspect of suffering is joy, every trial is a time for genuine joy, even in the midst of severe suffering. The NIV translates it pure joy. This kind of joy is not found necessarily in the trial themselves, but it's connected to them, because James says, when you meet trials of various kinds. And did you notice he doesn't say if? He says when. So why can we rejoice in trials? Because even in the darkest hours, we know that God is still in control, and his divine purposes will come to pass. Remember what Joseph said in Genesis 50. What others mean for evil, God intends for good. Or Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good, right? For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So we need God's wisdom to understand God's purpose and his perspective on trial so that we might remain steadfast. Now the next phrase is, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So trials can cause cause anxiety and worry our hearts, but here we find that assurance that God is at work in them. He uses those various trials to refine and to mature our faith and to produce that steadfastness, that endurance, that stick-to-itness. We think of Joseph maybe in prison, before becoming second only to the Pharaoh, or Job. There's lots of biblical characters we could think of. As you read scripture, you, you see the truth of First Peter. In First Peter 1, 6, and 7, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You might have heard of stress testing. You might think of it only in terms of medical condition, like my mom had to do a stress test when they were diagnosing her heart condition. But stress testing is also done on metals like steel in order to make sure that it's strong enough for structures that we want to trust, like bridges over rivers and things like that. When they do these kind of tests, engineers do tests of, they, they try to stretch it, they put loads on it, they even whack it with tools to see if it will dent, to see how tough the metal is. And that's kind of what trials do in our lives. We are stretched, we feel pounded, we feel like we're carrying a heavy load, but it's meant to strengthen us and make us steadfast. First Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So now we come to the second imperative of this book, and that is to let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
So the ultimate full effect of our testing is our growth in character, a steadfastness or endurance. Another term for this is sanctification. God is working his master plan for our good and for his glory. And God's plan, James tells his readers, is that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How can this be? Perfect and complete when? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we will be never perfect this side of heaven. Who is the only perfect one? Jesus. Jesus perfectly lived out this command in the greatest and most unjust trial of all time, the cross. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we can rest in Jesus' perfection, even as we seek his wisdom and his grace and help to understand and to trust his purposes in our trials. As we count it all joy, we bring glory to Jesus as we become more and more like him. And then when we are decisively and perfectly whole, that's called glorification. Won't that be wonderful to enjoy that complete and absolute perfection when we will truly lack nothing? But that is not yet. Now we come to a second major theme in the book of James, and that is a theme of wisdom. Verses five through eight. In this section, James lays down yet another domino. Did you notice it? Look at the word, the, one of the last phrase here, lacking in nothing. What does he say in the next verse? If any of you lacks wisdom. So he's using the word lack, lacking and lack as another little domino here. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So to hold to hold God's perspective on trials, we need his wisdom. And if we lack that kind of wisdom... We should cry out to God in trusting prayer. This is the third imperative. So if you lack wisdom, you must ask. Ask God. We often can't understand God's purpose, so you need to pray for that kind of understanding, to have eyes to see the way God is seeing. On Sunday, I was talking with a friend who, she's not here this morning, I'm not going to mention her name, but we were comparing stories of trusting God with a house sale and uh, closing on a house that for some reason or another had fallen through. She endured it for two and a half years and hopefully is closing on it this week. We endured it for about five and a half years, and it was really hard during those five years to understand what was God doing. Sometimes you get glimpses of what he was doing in it, and I think I've shared with that before with you before. You can ask me about it later if you want. But we do absolutely need God's wisdom to view our trials from his perspective, to see them as faith refining and character building. So James doesn't explicitly connect wisdom with trials in verses 5 through 8, 
But given the context, I think we can see how the original readers, his audience, might have related the, the wisdom here to trials because it's sandwiched between trials in verses two through four and trials again in verses nine through 11. So what can we learn about God from this section? Well, God is described in verse five as the one who gives generously to all without reproach. So James is contrasting God with the fickleness that he lays out in verses six through eight. So this doubting person is like a wave in a stormy sea, double-minded, unstable, erratic, but God gives with unwavering generosity. He doesn't give a gift only to demand it back later. And he also gives without reproach. He doesn't resent us for asking, and he will not insult us by responding, good grief, you need wisdom again? He knows we need it. He doesn't find fault with us. He doesn't demean us. What good news it is to have a God who does not give in that way. His kind giving is without reserve. It's without hesitation. He knows we need him, and he delights to supply us with all that we need, all the wisdom we need. It says here, it will be given to him. God wants us to be wise. He wants us to know him, to turn from our own ways and to follow his ways. So as we become aware of our lack of wisdom, we can cry out to God and we can expect our prayer to be answered because he is the loving and trustworthy giver of true wisdom. But we're to ask in faith with no doubting. This qualification for asking God for wisdom, faith means trusting that God will provide. This is not a one-time initial belief, but it's an ongoing confidence in God's goodness, his generosity, and his faithfulness to all of his promises. You notice this theme of asking God, this theme of prayer is another, th- another theme that James uh, highlights throughout the book, but especially in the very last closing paragraph of the book of James, seven times he mentions the importance of prayer. So we're going to get to that as we close our study. But I just, this called to mind another old hymn that I debated singing this morning, and that is, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Are you familiar with some of the, some of the lines in that? He says, All our sins and griefs to bear, that it's a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged, but take it to the Lord in prayer. Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. So James uses vivid imagery now to describe the person who doubts when asking. He says, like a wave of the sea. He says, this is, double, this is what double-minded is. It's like hesitation. It's doubt. And the literal translation here is two-souled. So maybe you've known people who are like unwilling to let go of the world and truly follow Jesus. This describes someone who is not stable in trials, not steadfast, but wavering. Thus, James's vivid image here of being tossed around in a stormy sea. And this reminded me of Peter. 
Remember the stormy night that the disciples were out on the Sea of Galilee, the wind was howling, and there was, they were being, it says the boat was being beaten by the waves. And then they saw Jesus walking on those waves, and it terrified them. And remember, Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus graciously says, come. And then do you remember what happened next? Peter gets out of the boat, right? The wind is still blowing. The waves are still there. But Peter walks on the water, right? And then Matthew records, when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, and he took a hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And now this same Peter, I mean, we've seen Peter. I think if you've studied the life of Peter, you know that Peter was had his highs and his lows. He had a lot of failings, like all of us. We can identify with Peter, right? But later, this same Peter wrote an encouraging letter to an audience that was very similar to James. He addressed it to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Does that sound sound familiar? They were also suffering under various trials. And Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 5.10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So when James tells us to ask in faith, this doesn't mean that we worry about whether we have enough faith and we try to muster up enough to some minimum level before we pray. No, it means praying with a heart posture of trust in our good and powerful and generous and kind God. And because of Jesus, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. Because of Christ's perfect life and atoning death, We have a mediator. That is great news for us. So in summary here, steadfast trust in God in trials requires God's wisdom, and he gives it generously when we ask in faith. Verses 9 through 11. Now James shifts again to the topic of trials for which we need God's perspective because trials can benefit us whatever circumstances we are in, whether rich or lowly. James writes, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So one common trial is poverty. James was writing to a mixed congregation of those that were rich, some that were poor, And then we come to the final imperative in this passage, and that is, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich boast in his humiliation. You might scratch your head and say, James, you're throwing another riddle out here for us. But throughout scripture, we see the theme of the lowly being exalted and the exalted being brought low. And James uses this term lowly brother to refer to those brought low in an economic sense, like poverty, But in scripture, this also can refer to those who are poor in spirit or humility. And that's a pleasing thing to God, to be poor in spirit. And the command is to boast. 
in his exaltation. And this seems at first to maybe be like an oxymoron. How would you, why would you, if you're lowly, how, how, how can you boast in your exaltation? And a couple of possibilities here, and I thought of the term already and not yet that you might be familiar with. James could be referring here to our current already exalted spiritual position that we have in Christ, like we read in Ephesians 1 or Colossians 3, that we're hidden with Christ in God, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are rich in the Lord. We have nothing eternal to lose, right? So even despite our economic circumstances, we can boast in our exaltation, our position, right? And we could be looking ahead, anticipating that not yet ultimate status of our final glorified state, being freed from sin, free from need, free from tears or pain. Now, one common trial is poverty, but the opposite, wealth or riches, can also be a trial, a temptation, as those can lead a person to trust in those rather than trusting in God. Trials remind the rich that they dare not trust in riches, but in God. Any gain that we have is counted lost for the sake of Jesus, and knowing him is surpassing worth. So the losses that we encounter, if that makes us turn to Jesus, that would cause us to boast, right? To boast in those losses, to boast in humiliation. So regardless of our circumstances, we need to see our current situation from God's perspective. And the reason is because, like a flower of the grass, will pass away. Again, James uses some powerful imagery here to illustrate the temporary nature of this life. And this is contrasted with the steadfast love of the Lord that is never failing, that is always with us. And it's only with God's wisdom that we can truly have this perspective on the momentary nature of riches, and we can store up for ourselves riches in heaven treasure in heaven, as Jesus said. And then we come to verse 12, which is kind of a hinge verse for next week. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So is there anybody in this room who is not enduring a trial? No, I don't see anyone. But I was going to assure you that if you were not, that you soon will be. <laughs> Even like Joyce, when you, you, you came to class and your car dies, right? Trials threaten our stability. They shatter our illusion of being in control, don't they? They also point us to Jesus and his steadfast love and grace. So what will be your response when those winds of adversity blow? Maybe when you're treated with a lack of respect, when you lose your cell phone, when you crash your car, you lose your job, when you're dealing with infertility and multiple miscarriages, when you're faced with fail or caring for a family member for the short term or for the long term, or when that beloved family member dies. When you face a trial, large or small, will you in that moment remember the sovereignty of God and the plan of God to use that trial to produce spiritual steadfastness in you? Will you consider that your steadfast trust in the Lord is based on his steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and it's not on your trials? Will you respond in faith, or will you despair, get angry, or any other variety of possible sinful responses? 
Will you grumble silently or audibly? Or will you count it all joy? We can't respond with rejoicing apart from the empowerment of God's Spirit. We must plead for wisdom to view our trials from God's perspective, from his eternal vantage point. When a trial comes, is your first inclination to pray for wisdom, to view your trials in such a way? How many times have we read this admonition and we failed to pray? Remember, he is your refuge and strength. He is a very present help in time of trouble. That's Psalm 46. So you can run to him in prayer. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us more grace? Would you give us grace to see our need for you, grace to trust you in all of our trials, grace to run to you in prayer for wisdom and facing our circumstances, grace to have steadfast joy? Lord, we need your wisdom. We desperately need you to help us to see that you are good, you are trustworthy, you are steadfast in your love and your care for us. So help us to run to you and to trust in you with our whole lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.